Welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute and the host of the Quadcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Gerard Mason, an associate dean in African American Affairs at the University of Virginia where he is the director of the Luther Porter Jackson Black Cultural Center. Dr. Mason is also a clinician and a professor with a background in student affairs. Dr. Mason is a mental health consultant to the Steve Fund, a research and advocacy organization focused on the mental health and well-being of students of color. Welcome, Dr. Mason. Oh my, thank you for having me. You've got a lot going on, I gotta say. (laughs) We're delighted to have you. In fact, we first spoke with Dr. Mason when he was a panelist at our webinar on the faculty's response to student mental health survey we did with the Healthy Minds Network and the BU School of Public Health. But from the comments in the chat, it was clear that the audience was super interested in what Dr. Mason had to say. So, of course, we invited him back to be on the podcast. So, we're delighted. So, today's topic is campus mental health and well being in a post COVID new normal kind of world. So, I might start with your opinion on what schools need to be thinking about all of that, sort of based on your experiences at UVA and, and what you've been up to for the past, gosh, 16, 18 months. So, I think. As a starting point, before COVID, I think a lot of us were in a privileged position where we began to believe that our university experiences were in themselves wholly good and able to mitigate a lot of the the difficulties that students had. If we could just get students to our campuses, we would be able to make sure that they did well. You know, COVID sort of challenged a lot of that, where we started to see that Even students who make it to us are not spared from the realities of family difficulties or community difficulties or health challenges. I think that's the starting point. You know, we had to question how preventative is the college experience from preventing students from having difficulties. To me, I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we learned that not only can we not protect students 100 percent, But coming to college actually has challenges in itself. We had to figure out how do we best respond to the challenges that are created internally and externally. Particularly what I think we've learned about is how difficult the learning experience is and that there are a lot of the the difficulties that students experience, the anxieties, the depressions, the panics. A lot of that can be linked specifically just to the academic enterprise, COVID or not. And I think we're, we're trying to get better at addressing those things. So to me, I think that's a starting place. We have to begin to imagine that students are experiencing difficulties in different ways from one another and that we can't just rely on student affairs. You make an excellent point. So to paraphrase, so you're saying because of technology and, you know, some people had difficulties with Wi-Fi and again, different kind of student experiences were brought to the fore for professors for the first time. Do you think it made them see the students more as, as humans with difficulties and barriers and limitations? Is that sort of what you mean? I think so. Absolutely. And not only to see the students as humans, but to see themselves as humans in Mm -hmm. relation to the students. We are realizing that 
the college experience is a relational one. And once those relationships get disrupted, you know, all sorts of havoc ensues and we have to anticipate that. So I think all of us are now trying to relearn regardless of our starting point. If, you know, somebody like me might have thought that I was pretty good at interpersonal relationships, especially in the college space, but all of us are having to retune our empathy and to retool as humans to make sure that we can make the most of our relationships and leverage those relationships to be healing. So I think you're absolutely right. Yes, I think we discovered that all of us have a role in making sure that each of us has a good experience in higher ed. Yeah. Yeah. So you had made a similar point on the webinar about COVID sort of opening up mm-hmm. silos, particularly those related to student affairs. I thought this was such a great point that you made. So mm-hmm. that suddenly, you know, student health and well-being was suddenly was not a departmental thing, right? Certainly the faculty saw it and were very loud and clear in the survey about their experiences with student mental health. So given that, is that a good thing? And if so, what, what can that teach us about how to scale this going forward? I think it's an amazing thing. Just from an organizational perspective, I think just as from my perspective as a student affairs professional, I do think the heaviest burden for containing the student experience and all of the difficulties therein rests with student affairs. I do believe that. The COVID situation, this pandemic has upended that so that to your point, lots of other people have been implicated. And I actually think that's useful from an organizational perspective Because prior to COVID, you know, I think the normal chain of operations would have been, for instance, uh, student X has problems with Professor Y. The pedagogy is not there. You know, the empathy as an instructor is not there. And uh, student is feeling very disoriented by that. More than likely, you know, that original disorientation is taken up by student affairs. We would manage that and make sure that the student feels good about themselves in relation to this problem. And then we would help them get some skills on how to approach that. And then they would go back to the academic enterprise uh, with those skills, with that sort of emotional support. And then they would try to resolve the issues. In this past 14 months, a lot of that was disrupted. The students were going directly to the academic enterprise to say, hey, I'm living life out here. And you're still telling me that this paper is due three days from when you assigned it. They didn't have a student affairs intermediate, you know, mediator. So they were just having to work with it. I think that became overwhelming. The reason why I think it's an amazing thing, though, is because from an organizational perspective, if we can distribute the responsibility for making sure that our students are developing emotionally, socially, academically across the university's professionals, if we can distribute that responsibility across all units, then all of a sudden now you open up space within student affairs for the innovation to occur. Because I think that's where we are now. We're at a point in we're at an inflection point where innovation is absolutely essential and is going to be necessary for us to really meet the demands and the needs of these students when they return in the fall. So I think by distributing the responsibility, you actually create space in the entire organization for innovation, which is what I think we need. So I think it's great. Yeah. Wow. That that would be a great silver lining to all this, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Certainly. There's all this chaos. I want to ask you about a subject that you study and that you live, and that is race on campus and and mental health. One of the things I know about your work, which is interesting, I'd love our listeners to learn more about, 
is the RISE program. So you oversee Mm -hmm. this interesting peer counseling program for Black students, Mm -hmm. as I understand it, launched by Black students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Start start with the history of that and why you think that was so important and bring that up to today's scenario in terms Mm -hmm. of how Black students are feeling about their mental health and well-being given everything Mm -hmm. that's gone on this past year. You know, a lot of people see things like the the rise in the culture wars or the the tensions that related to that relate to culture, race and ethnicity, diversity, equity, inclusion as new things. However, for those of us who've been watching this, you see it happen in cycles. So in two thousand and five to about two thousand and ten, there was uh, in higher education a, a similar emergence, explosion of difficulties related to bias, discrimination, and harassment. And across the country, students had began to demand that universities respond to keep them safe. And at UVA, we were not spared that. And I think the students were particularly challenged because they felt not only were they being impacted by race, racism, discrimination, harassment, but they also were made to feel that the source and solution of those problems resist, existed inside of them. They were the, the carriers of both the solution and the, the pathology. And that didn't feel great. So the students began to say, rather than be pathologized, we would like to have the skills to begin to address our own needs. And they created this thing, Project RISE. At the time, RISE was an acronym, Resolving Issues Through Support and Education. And it was really just an attempt to give students the basic skills they needed to listen and respond uh, to one another. And that's how it started. And it was, I think, about a weekend's worth of training in the fall and another Saturday in the spring. And that was really meaningful to the students, that they had options quite a bit based on what I've learned about how students make use of this sort of support. The key learning goes against this thought about poor help-seeking behaviors, which I think is very common in psychological literature, research. And it's this thought that students of color, particularly Black students, are suspicious or reluctant to use formal uh, mental health you know, services. And to some degree, that, that may be true. But what I've learned from Project RISE is that students are absolutely seeking help. The twist is that they're seeking help from one another. Mm. And they are more inclined to use peers than they are to use a primary or formal institution like a counseling and psychological services or a therapist. So by the time they've gotten to a therapist, they probably already talked their problem through with at least two to four other people, including friends and family. So that's that was Project Rise. It, 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 and I think it changes the game when you start to realize that there is a robust network of support that students are trying to rely on. And you can begin to change an experience completely if that network of support actually has training to do the work that we would be doing secondary or tertiary as supporters. That's what we learned. And I think that's going to be extra critical when the students return in the fall, because universities are going to have to increase their surface area, because there is going to be so much demand both from the stress perspective, but also just from a general affect hunger perspective. I think the students are just going to be coming back craving for relationships, craving for human affirmation. They're going to need people. And it's not going to be possible for the staff and the you know faculty and administrators to do all of that by themselves. We're going to need communities to do that. 
So I think this model is going to be immensely generalizable or, or it's going to be necessary to scale our care and our love to students because I absolutely know right now, especially with hiring freezes and all of the sort of HR challenges universities had over the last 16 months, we're just not equipped to do it without our community. So I think this model is going to be particularly viable and useful. Yeah, it, it, it has so much application for student, well, it started with students of color, but for all students and for all members of the community. And if I have this correctly, it really gets to that notion that not everybody needs counseling, but everybody needs a community, right? Everybody needs someone to talk to and needs a sense of belonging. I'm super interested in the peer-to-peer work. We're probably going to be doing some research on that in the future because I do think it is indicative of what we're learning more in the qualitative research is that students are really seeking and are hungry for connection. Mm-hmm. You know, and there, there's lots of reasons behind that. But to your point, even more so now, that's been a terrific example. Let me go back to Black students for a second and talk a little bit about the Steve Fund and your mm-hmm. point about help-seeking behavior. The Steve Fund has filled this enormous void and does great work in and really acknowledging and underscoring that there are differences in help-seeking behavior and in what students of color, how they want to receive help, which is, I think, the RISE program is a perfect example of that. Talk a little bit more about what you think the next frontier is for for that organization in terms of really being able to help college presidents and their cabinets figure out how to address the unique mental health needs of their students of color, particularly Black students. The next frontier, that's, that's an amazing question and a very important question. I think the first part of the work, if I had to encapsulate it, we probably need Ms. Bell Rose, who established the Steve Fund to do a better job at this. Yeah, I, re- uh, I realize I put you on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to f- frame what what has been done now in this first phase of work, it's really to be a champion and an advocate to say there are differences in ways that students experience university life. And those differences have major implications for health and wellness. Those things are absolutely true. And I think they have done an amazing job of establishing a very sound body of research and a set of recommendations and a set of services, programs, and tools that can be used to respond as students experience this very culturally unique style of distress. So I think they've been really good at that and convince, you know, end of convincing universities that what they're saying is true, that as a function of being a student of color in higher ed, we are, and I use we intensely, I was one of them, we are subject to forces that create in us different distresses that are that are different from non-students of color. So I think they have done an amazing work and they are serious champions of that. At this point, I think now the work is to start to say, okay, if we accept your first premise, you know, that there are challenges that students of color face, now what do we do with that? And I think that's where we are now, where we're starting to say, not only do we have a body of research, not only do we have recommendations, but we can begin to model interventions that are evidence-based, culturally informed, and that begin to make sense within the specific culture and climate of a specific university. 
to me, I think that's where the magic is starting to happen, where you can begin to map on, you know, nationally normed data and interventions to specific cultural climates at universities. Because I think the challenge we have just in general is that people like to increase scale and scope without actually understanding that if the cultural climates are different, the interventions may land differently. So we're now starting to build out the capacity to say, here are a set of recommendations, here are a set of interventions, and here is what they may look like on your specific campus. Uh, And giving people tools and the training on how they might discover these truths for themselves and then begin to better use the recommendations and tools from the Steve Fund. So to me, I think that may be a good avenue for not only the Steve Fund, but for most institutions who are interested in providing, you know, mental health services to students of color. Right. Great, great point. And I, and I will add to it that the Steve Fund had released a terrific resource in the COVID task force report that had a listing of recommendations that I think were super helpful to colleges. So that, and, and more, I'm sure we'll see more from them. In terms of this point in time, we hear the word reckoning so often used and you know, talking about race in America right now. And we talk a lot about the inequities, the pandemic and the killings of Black Americans exposed. And that's great that we're having those conversations. Is this a point in time? Is this is this a reckoning? Is this different in your opinion? Do, does it promise does this particular period promise change in a way that some of the previous periods that you referred to haven't? You know, I am eternally, cautiously optimistic, yet skeptical. I'm trying to describe this crazy space I live in as a Black man in this country. It's a weird space to be in because as I'm hopeful, I also am a student of history and, and that sort of puts some limitations there on hope. So to your question, you ask, is this the reckoning moment? I don't know. I think it is an important moment. And I keep using, I think, the language of inflection point. I do think it's an opportunity for us to pivot and do some things differently. But some of these ideal outcomes are still many years away. But is this a moment where we can make a choice between continuing maintaining structures that are systematically oppressive or begin the process of turning those machines off. I think that's where we are. We can begin to do some really important work if we commit to it. The reason why I'm sort of cautiously hopeful that we can make this pivot is that we see evidence of things, evidence of energy not to. And again, I always hate to sort of go into even surface level politics right now. However, if we use the example, for instance, of the rampant legislation across the country to restrict voting rights, if we were to use that as a metaphor for the way systems like to be maintaining themselves, that that sort of gives me pause, right? Where I think, yes, this is a moment where the country has had to say, wait a minute, there are absolute tragedies that are happening and those tragedies are absolutely rooted in race, ethnicity, and gender. Those things are an absolute truth. We can't say they don't exist. That's the start of it. But then, you know, people start to try to rewrite history. They begin to rewrite narratives. So we just have to be persistent. If we can be persistent and hold on to the reality that these truths are still true today as they were six months ago, six years ago, 60 years ago, 600 years ago. If we can hold on to that these truths are there and they must be addressed if we are committed to humanity and even to something as specific as anti-racist sort of 
thought and pedagogy. You know, if we can just hold on to it, I do think we'll we'll make some right decisions. But if we forget, as we so often do, if we forget, I do think we're at risk of sort of staying the course. Amazing insights. Thank you so much. I, I, I think I've got to let that be the last question. <laughs> We learned so much today from talking to you. Again, so grateful for giving us your time, Dr. Mason. Good luck with all of your fantastic work and come back again to the quadcast. I hope you'll invite me back. Thank you so much. I certainly will. You take care. This has been the quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.